You're listening to Wicked Good Lawyers, the show that discusses all facets of the legal industry, the good, bad, and most importantly, the funny, through the stories and advice of trailblazer attorneys from across the country. I'm your host, Shyle Maloney, a fifth-year associate at Barton Gilman, and welcome back for this week's episode with Deepak Aluwalia, an immigration attorney from California. Learn how he started his own law firm, after his very first year. Say what? Looking for a court reporter for a deposition, arbitration, trial, or interview? Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. They provide on-demand access to more than 12,000 offices in over 2,700 cities across the country and have working business relationships with 5,000 independent court reporting professionals. No matter where you are or your state's requirement, they can provide an experienced professional court reporter for any situation. Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, they soundly collect and process this information efficiently to a host review platform at an affordable rate. Every litigator deserves to have eDiscovery review software that is efficient and affordable with access to customer service and project managers that make them feel supported. Hundreds of litigation attorneys from Boston and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with eDiscovery. You should too. Hey, Wicked Good Lawyer listeners, thanks for checking in again. This is Shyla, and I'm your host for our new episode. Today, we have an awesome special guest, Deepak Aluwalia. Based out of California, Deepak Aluwalia is an immigration attorney and has his own private practice, defense litigation, employment, and family-based immigration. He has expertise and experience working on removal and deportation cases and has litigated several hundred cases before the immigration court. His expertise in working with immigration of varied nationalities has led him to be interviewed by leading media outlets such as The Guardian, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Vice News, and CNN. Deepak provides pro bono assistance through partner organizations with a focus on immigration and minority representation. Wow, are we lucky to have you today, Deepak. I am so excited, and I know you have been interviewed at all these other places, so thanks for giving us the time. Thank you for having me, Shaila. I appreciate it. So to start for our listeners, we're going to just explain the segments we have today with Deepak. The first one is on frenemies in the workplace. The second is first year to owning your own law firm. And then the third is building a book of business. So just to kick it off with frenemies, I know the saying goes, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But how does that work in the professional context? I mean, we've all been there, right, Deepak? In most states, the bar is very small. I know in Massachusetts, that's true. Is that the same in California? Yeah, you know, um, so I've been licensed in Texas, Shyla, for going on seven to eight years now. Um and California was more recent, I would say, in the last year or two. And so uh, I would imagine the California bar community to be a lot larger 
Um, however, if we were to look at within the Central Valley, which, you know, Fresno is in the considered in the Central Valley, the community is much smaller. So the concept of frenemies definitely shows up <laughs> a lot more um, than probably perhaps larger at state, seeing yeah. how the value is only limited events or communities where you're seeing a lot of the same people over and over again. I agree. I think especially in Massachusetts, <laughs> the most events are usually in Boston. That's the hub. So I see the same people over and over and over. So you never really want to make a front of me. But you know, it happens either they just don't like you, bad outcome on a case. But what do you think people should do with frenemies in the professional industry? Well, I like to correlate a lot of uh, these examples with growing up playing soccer. You know, I'm a big soccer guy. We were discussing that offline. And so for me, I've been on teams with individuals um, that I actually disliked. I don't think they were um, great individuals, but they were great soccer players and they were part of my team. So I had to kind of move on and move forward. I've been coached throughout the years by coaches who I thought had no business coaching soccer. So I, I kind of use that example of, and maybe more specifically within the immigration context or the practice of law, I'm before judges who you know, some probably don't like me because I can get very aggressive um, in making sure that my client's rights are protected. I've come across many trial attorneys who represent the, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, who also probably don't like me for various reasons. Um, and, but, but you know, it's it does sometimes get uncomfortable. But I, I think what I use to guide me, again, using that example from soccer is I'm, I'm working and performing on my craft as right. our name. And so we don't have to be the best of friends. We have to respect each other on the field, right? And off the field, you kind of have your limitations or your space that you need from these individuals. But the respect factor has to be there, right? We can't get petty. We, we can't make it personal. I've been in many trials, actually, and this, this just happened to me, I would say, about a month or two ago. The trial attorney was getting very aggravated because I kept objecting to her cross-examination. And uh, and she was just really taking it personally. Uh, and she was getting very frustrated, but it threw her off. And we ended up winning the case simply because she was just thrown off her game. But after hearing was done, I, I made sure that you know she understood that that was just on the battlefield, so to speak, right? It's just yes, no hard yeah. feelings. She's doing her job and I'm doing mine. Yeah, that is great, especially just remembering at the end of the day, it's a job, you know, it's your reputation, you're trying to be the best advocate for your client, that's what the industry is. And I appreciate you kind of taking the time after the fact to let her know that, you know, this is nothing personal, I'm just doing my job. And at the end of the day, that's all it is. I definitely agree with you saying the respect thing, especially nowadays, where there's way more people, there's more opportunities to see individuals in court, or especially on zoom, and you don't always get that personal interaction. Action. I feel like sometimes there's limitation with the electronic version of you and you can't really get that personal connection. Do you have any advice in trying to navigate that? Yeah, I can actually give you what, what I do. Like you've mentioned, Shaila, since COVID has hit, the pandemic has made us rethink how we will approach the, the court proceedings, for example. So, you know, all of our court hearings have been moved to WebEx. So I went from being in San Francisco Immigration Court for the most part once or twice a week to I've probably seen the court in person maybe two times in the last two, two three years. Wow. Um, so I'm still in court, so to speak, mm -hmm. but I'm in my office here in Fresno yeah. two times a week now. So, you know, how, how do I adapt? What I used to do is I used to go make small talk with a trial attorney before a trial started. If yep. it was a trial attorney I wasn't familiar with, I would do my research. If it was a judge I had never been before, I would do my research like any good mm -hmm. attorney is doing. I used to make, you know, see where they're from, which law school they attended, 
if we had any personal or similar interests, I would do all that research. Didn't matter who the judge was. And so now me being in WebEx and, you know, judges sometimes forgetting or they just want to proceed to just getting on the record, getting the case over with. I still try to do those things, actually, believe it or not. So I'll log in a little bit earlier than the actual hearing starting. And then I'd hope the judge is there. The trial attorney is usually there before. And I would actually just make small talk. Even if the trial attorney can be one of the nastiest trial attorneys that, you know, (laughs) court offers, I still make small talk. And you know what? Believe it or not, I'm I'm a firm believer. I'm a big fan of um, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, And so I've I've read all his books over the years. But I think his last book, which I read back in 2019, was Talking to Strangers. That book I would really, really recommend for all attorneys because... I was doing things that I read in that book that Malcolm described that I didn't know I was actually doing. Uh, and it, it just gave all these great examples of approaching conversations with certain strangers and how starting on the wrong foot could actually end in various different consequences that you actually did not intend for. And mm-hmm. just remembering that just because you have two different personalities doesn't mean that you cannot find any common ground. So I've used that as a guide with many trial attorneys over the years that may personally dislike me just based on how aggressive I might be in court. But because of that common ground I found with them, they respect me. And I think because of that, we are able to actually move forward. Yeah, that sounds great, especially the book. I'll definitely have to check that out. Um, I do find it difficult sometimes to navigate strangers where they almost come in with agenda and they feel like they already know you, even though you've never met. So trying to start off on the right foot is definitely helpful in those situations. And then just segueing a bit into people who aren't strangers, you know, in some ways, workplaces feel a lot like high school. There's a lot of judgment, drama, competition. Um, what are some tips and tricks you have in navigating the not stranger relationships in an office? Yeah, again, I would give the soccer example of, you know, I, I we've been on soccer, or I've been on soccer teams where you're competing to be captain of the soccer team, you're competing to be in the starting lineup. And so sometimes you butt heads, sometimes you're, you're tasked with having teammates who are playing with you who actually don't have your best interest for you. That happens in the real world setting, right? It happens in law right. firms, maybe more so in larger corporate setting than maybe on a smaller scale, but it happens. And I think the thing to understand is you need to carry yourself forward and not let things weigh you down or get to you. And I know it's very easy to say that, but I, again, I, I feel like someone who's grown up playing sports, it is really easy for me to decipher and separate mm-hmm. that. And and think, look, like this person is not coming from a bad place. This person is coming from insecurity. And so um, he or she may want me to fail based on A, B, and C, but I just need to continue doing my work and making sure that I'm rewarded for what I'm doing. But at the same time, you know, if it gets to a point where you are being disrespected, you feel like your, your place is not valued, well, then you need to go somewhere else where you are valued because there is a line that should be drawn. Yeah, I agree with the line being drawn, especially where there's so many places out there that are the right fit. I know a lot of attorneys feel like they're almost stuck somewhere, but nowadays you're seeing people make the jump more and more, even high-end partners. So it isn't an end-all be-all. I would also recommend trying to find common ground with people in the office. 
because it can be such a supportive place and provide you a lot of growth. But again, if they're not respecting you, it's good to look for the culture that you're looking for. It is there. You know, I know we get a bad rep in the legal industry that it's very competitive, very contentious, but not every firm has all these bad red flags. A lot of them are very family oriented. They want you to do a good job for you and the client. So definitely look out for yourself. Yeah. And I hear some horror stories about people at work where their work or books will get magically lost or they feel like they're getting gaslighted in meetings. Do you have any advice for newer attorneys who feel like they almost don't have a voice yet in the the quote unquote front of me industry? Yeah, actually I can, uh, I can provide a personal experience that I had Uh, my first job well, second job out of law school was for a mid-sized firm in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, a lot of stuff was happening there that should not be happening. One of the things that I found out because I was a newer attorney was some of the more senior paralegals were actually doing work on my behalf and without me reviewing, just submitting it. Yikes. Obviously, no. And so now, you know, this is a new kid on the block. I think my Mm -hmm. license was like four or five months fresh. My boss is someone who's been licensed for 15 plus years. I'm the most junior, even in terms of comparison to the paralegals on staff. And so I was worried, but then I brought it back to, okay, well, is this how I want to start my legal career? Right. Am I so worried about keeping my job and paying the bills that I'm willing to sacrifice ethics and as well as my reputation for this? And to me, the answer was no. So I it up. And I told him I was leaving and that was the end of that. And then I think like a week after that happened, I started my own firm. That's amazing. So, yeah. So, so it was, you know, again, it was not an easy decision, right? Because maybe the information wasn't wrong. Maybe they just didn't want me to review it because they thought it was faster and they had more experience, but that wasn't the point. The, the point was that my, my best intentions were not being kept in mind uh, in terms of something happened. That was my bar number. That was my name. And, and and when I did bring it up to the boss, I mean, he didn't even flinch. He thought there was nothing wrong with that. Oh, and, so, and so I knew very quickly what I thought was going to be my five-year stint with, with this firm uh, ended up being like a six to nine month operation. Well, good for you for knowing when to speak up. I say the same thing at the end of the day. It's my reputation and my name on it. If there's an ethical question, always feel like you have a superior to ask, especially if you're newer. And if there is a question, speak up. I mean, yes, you do have to kind of weigh your options. What will happen if I do? But just know nothing's more important than your reputation and your license at the end of the day. So thanks for your best advice on how to navigate frenemies. Now, Deepak, I'd love to learn more about you. This segment is discussing from first year to owning your own firm. And from what we just heard from you, we found out you started your own firm in your first year, which is actually mind-blowing. I'd love to hear your story. I know you're the owner of your current firm and you immigrated from Canada, but tell us who is Deepak Alualia? Yeah, well, um, the the origins of uh, my story begin even before Canada. I grew up in Germany, in Frankfurt. My my parents before that, they had immigrated from Punjab, which is northern part of India. Dad immigrated to Germany in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. And so I lived there until I was about seven or eight. And when, when, around that time, we had immigrated to Canada, where I spent majority of my childhood. School there, played soccer, decided to make the move to the U.S. when I got into law school. But in between that, in terms of my childhood, 
my my father actually passed away when I was 16 years old, which I would wow. Wow. really say, yeah, thank you, um, which I would say is really the defining moment for anyone who's experienced death or tragedy in their life. And uh, that is when I first seriously decided to take a take a look at academics or even the fact that I want to be a lawyer. So during that time, when I was in the 11th grade, I became the man of the house, man of the house overnight. And so I was juggling two jobs. I was working 60 to 80 hours a week while finishing off high school. Wow. And throughout college, yeah, throughout college, I, I again did 60 to 80 hours. I was a full time insurance broker for TD Insurance. And I worked at the call center for Rogers Wireless, which is like your AT&T and Sprint. Mm-hmm. So, that did college all the way through while working those two jobs. And then when I got into law school, I didn't have anyone to co-sign for my loan to get into law school. And then, you know, there was another obstacle. And, uh, and so what happened was my cousin who lived in Texas at that time and still does, uh, was a very successful businessman, still is. And he actually offered to pay for my law school or give me a loan and uh, send me to law school with no interest, uh, uh, you know, told me I can pay him back whenever I want. It was obviously very generous. What an opportunity, yeah. Yeah, and, and he was in San Antonio, which was part of my plan because I actually always wanted to be in the United States. I felt like there were a lot more opportunities here than up north. And so for various different reasons, including my cousin offering to pay or loan me money for law school, I ended up in San Antonio for law school at St. Mary's. So, you know, went to law school there, graduated in 2014. And then as soon as I graduated in 2014, I uh, ended up working for a U.S.-based immigration law firm back in Toronto, back in uh, oh, okay. back home. You know, got to learn a lot of things there. Also learned a lot of things that should not be happening and what I would do different. Then ended up back in San Antonio working for that same mid-sized law firm that I was just talking about where I lasted about six to nine months before I went solo. Hope our listeners find that as motivating as me. You know, you definitely persevered through all these crazy things. At the end of the day, stay true to yourself. You had a goal in mind. You were like, how can I get there? I feel very similar about myself. You know, I work very hard. At the end of the day, hard work does pay off. There's always bumps in the road. But just staying true to what your end goal is, that's amazing. I don't know if you had mentioned it, but where did you go to college and what did you study? First went to college at University of Toronto, and I was there for about two years. And that's actually part of the story because I was working 60 to 80 hours. University of Toronto is you know, considered one of the top universities and colleges in the world. Obviously, me not showing up for classes and just showing up for exams was not going to get me into law school. So that was another obstacle that I was facing where I got into one of the top schools. I was studying political science. I was majoring in that. And uh, but I did too. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it obviously helped me. But... I was barely just getting by and I knew that was not enough to get into law school. So I um, I always have had a great circle around me after my dad's passed away. Up until this day, I'm blessed. I have a great circle around me, whether it's family, friends, or mentorship. And so some of my high school teachers who I still kept in touch with throughout college actually had recommended another college, which was based out of Alberta, which allowed you to do a lot more distance learning, which really wasn't a concept back then. I mean, I don't want to age myself, but I'm also not that old. But, you know, (laughs) around 2008, well, no, 2005, 2006, you know, not a lot of colleges were offering distance learning courses or letting complete majority of your program online. And so I ended up transferring to Athabasca University, which really changed everything for me. It changed everything for me in terms of I was able to transfer my first two years of credits 
to Athabasca. Uh, I was able to continue studying and majoring in political science, but I was able to keep my work schedule. Mm -hmm. And so when I was at the call center, you know, the 20 or 30 hours I used to work at the call center, there were overnight shifts. And I always remember this. So my shift would be from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., three days a week. And every day between 2 and 6 a.m., the system would go down. So they would actually pay us to be there in the call center just to let callers know to call back after 6 a.m. Oh, wow. It wasn't even automated. So yeah. I was going to say no to that opportunity. So for those four hours, I would just do my schoolwork mm-hmm. and talk to the occasional customer calling in. So that worked. It all worked for me. Obviously, you know, when it came time to sit for exams, you'd have to go to a local college and make sure it's proctored and do all of that. But that is what changed my trajectory in terms of, okay, now I actually have a real shot at getting into law school. And yes, it was delayed because, you know, the average person takes four years to get into law school or well, finish their undergraduate degree. It took me six years, but I also did 60 to 80 hours of work a week. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it's nice for our listeners to hear that everyone has a different path and not every path has to be the traditional four years of college straight through days and then right to law school. And that's what I find most interesting about all the people I speak with, especially you, that there's other avenues, especially with all these other things happening in people's lives. You know, life is crazy. So it's interesting that you had that opportunity or still able to make everything work. Definitely inspiring. This pushed you into your interest in immigration law. Yeah, you know, um, my family also being family of immigrants, myself growing up in Canada, I think that really is what piqued my interest. I mean, I, I'm, I'm blessed to have the type of exposure to different cultures and backgrounds that I had. And I think the ability to continue and interact with people from all over the world is what kind of gave me that spark or allows to give me that spark to continue this journey. So I I did very early on prior to even attending law school know that immigration is something I want to do. And so I'm glad I stuck with that decision. During law school, I did do various other things to make sure that I was making the right decision. Uh, And uh, but yeah, I just kept going back to immigration. And and I think one of one of the most important advices that I got in law school from a professor was that whatever area that I chose I, I need to make sure that I do it because it drives me and it 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 uh, it feeds my soul, so to speak. Right? Um, right. I think when I first came into law school, yes, I had immigration in mind, but I was also like, I'm going to be a big corporate lawyer. I'm money, be- yes. Money because I just, you know, I just struggled for all these years. Right. I'll say no. And so it was a very tough conversation I had to have with myself. But you know, again, through great mentorship, I was explained that. As soon as you choose the area that you feel like defines you, that feeds you, you will excel at it where you will make money no matter what. Right. Yes, that's so so I, I chose to go with that principle versus, well, I just have to default to this because all my classmates are doing it. Yeah. I, I think that's great advice to hear for our listeners, especially if anyone's listening and they're in law school, because when you go, a lot of people are like, you're going to make six figures, you're going to make $200,000 right out the gate. And it's like, no, you don't. So it's nice to follow your heart. And you know, the old adage, if you do what you love, you won't work a day in your life. 
So it's nice to hear that you kind of follow through with that. And the money does come. I think if you're happy at what you do, you can work better. You can be a better advocate for your clients and you'd be more interested in waking up to go to the office every day. What made you want to start your own law firm? I will share. I think that's kind of crazy where you had been at that previous firm. You kind of gave their notice and you explained that it was only a week or so later. Uh, Tell us more about that. Yes, you know, going back to that U.S. immigration firm in Toronto, they're a pretty they're a pretty well known firm. They're they're one of the larger U.S. immigration firms up in Canada, and so I got my first job with them, and they were such a high volume firm where it was the typical quantity over quality, and I was just yeah. learning all these things, and I you know I was uh, retaining all these clients doing consultations for like these corporate companies I want to expand to the United States, but. It just didn't sit well with me in terms of like knowing that we're not providing the quality service that we should or the attention to detail. So obviously I didn't last very long there. <laughs> I, I I was trying to get back into the United States. And so through, which by the way, is a separate segment maybe for international law students, but it was very difficult for me in law school. Even though I'm Canadian, I obviously was here in the US on a student visa, on an international student visa. So I actually could not work for firms during the summer. I couldn't clerk and wow. become paid. So I had I didn't know that. That's oh, yeah, I had, I had severe restrictions, severe restrictions. So not only was I coming in on an uneven playing ground, a level playground, but I had more odds stacked against me because there's a lot of things my classmates were doing that I couldn't. But anyway, so I ended up at this mid-sized firm in Texas. This was back in 2015. My starting salary was $60,000. And I knew I was being severely underpaid given the size of this firm. But he, you know, the, the boss at that time was giving, the opportun- giving me the opportunity to go to trial, which you know a lot of people yeah. were not doing. And I was like, whoa, like, this is exactly what I need. Maybe I'll do a five-year plan. He was promising all this stuff to me in terms of, You'll make partner in these many years if you can bring your own book of business, which I was confident about. So I got to work and I worked my butt off. I was managing three offices, one in San Antonio, one in McAllen, one in Austin. And, and this is what, your first year out? You're- this was, I started in July of 2015 and I was there until March of 2016. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, my second day of my job, Shyla, my second day, my my boss sent me to trial. I never had any trial experience. Wow. Sent me on my second day of my job. And when we talk about frenemies, you know, which was an earlier <laughs> segment, but this is a great, you know, correlation. So I went to trial the second day of my job. He sent, an, uh, he sent a legal assistant with me to court, forgot and neglected to tell me that this hearing was continued already from a previous hearing and he sent me there to ask for another extension to the judge yikes this is a judge in san antonio texas you know he's really nice judge but he's known to be very 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 strict Mm -hmm. and so you know on the record i went asked for a continuance like i was told and the judge basically just chewed my head off he went off on me he went yeah. off on me. I'll never forget the trial attorney was sitting there just smiling and he was just, you know, calling us uh, irresponsible, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not prepared, not professional. He was threatening to report the boss. And then when the recording stopped, he immediately changed mm-hmm. and said, you know, listen, son, you know, I, I just want to let you know, don't take it personally. I know this is your first day in court, but this is why I did what I did. And yeah. I'm also going to let you know, this was mentorship without asking for it, right? And he said, I'm going to just let you know, 
um, you probably don't want to be working here for too long. Wow. That, that spoke volumes to me, right? That, yes, I have never heard that. And that's yeah. serious. So, so I knew very quickly that, you know what, I'm in a position where I need this job because I'm on a visa, mm -hmm. right? So I was stuck. Yeah. Um, I'm, I don't think I can go anywhere else because again, it's the same old, you know, for new law graduates or new attorneys, right? The new boss or the new place of work is going to wonder why did this guy last three months at yeah. the firm in Toronto? Why did he yeah. last three months here? So I was stuck. And so what I did was, okay, well, you know, like with anything I've ever done in life, let's make the best with the circumstances that have been given to me. Mm -hmm. um, this boss is, uh, he's not present. He's allowing me to oversee three offices and a staff of 20 people, 20 plus people. As a second year? Yeah, as a, yeah, as a, well, first year, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so, so let's go to town with this. Let's just do your work, do it really well and learn what I thought I was going to learn in five years, learn it in six to nine months. Um, or at that time, I told myself learning within a year. Um, and so I learned, I learned a lot. And that is, honestly, I credit that those nine months to where I am today, because mm -hmm. I got so much done, I was exposed to so many different things. And it was self taught, I had to learn yeah. by myself. Uh, but it allowed me to make that decision in March of 2016, where, you know, I finally drew a line and said, Look, you guys can't be sending stuff without me reviewing it and putting my name on this. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go solo. And when I went solo, I had three clients to my name. I had three clients to my name. They were both, they were all three of them were detained in Port Isabel detention facility, which is right up by the border uh, near McAllen, Texas. And they were just clients that needed bond representation. So I just want to put that in dollar figures because I really would like the listeners to understand yes. what I'm starting Please with. Please tell um, us. <laughs> yeah, I had $1,500 a pop. So I had $4,500 guaranteed to me for the next six months. Wow. Um, and I was newly married. My wife uh, was, she was doing contract work, but you know, I was technically the one with the full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so it was a huge decision, which I don't think a lot of people probably would have made, but I just went back to my past has guided me to get me to the present. And I've yeah. realized I've been in a much worse position in life. And so I'm going to take this risk because worst cases I'll fail. I'll fail and I'll go back and I'll apply somewhere else. But I just saw it as an opportunity of I, I'm ready. I knew I was confident and I had the tools and knowledge to actually take this step. And so I went for it. Yeah. Good for you for jumping in body first, not even feet first. Like that is a serious jump to make, especially so young in your career. And just go back to your piece of advice where you're saying you were going to get as much out of that experience as you could, where you felt like you couldn't jump. That's very helpful to hear. I know I tell a lot of younger attorneys, you know, you might not get your dream job right out the gate. You might not land that big firm you've always hoped, but there will be opportunities and experiences you can get at each office. So focus on those things, focus on the foundation and how to be very good at what you're looking to do. And that will help you jump to the next thing if that is so what you want. So it's nice to hear that you kind of did that. You saw an opportunity. I hear the best stories from people who are self-starters, people who really put in the time to teach themselves. I'm very similar in that regard where I love to learn. And if I don't know it now, I will become an expert because sometimes you just have to. So um, that's very helpful. What are some things you look forward to every day with your current job and practice? I think, you know, being within the realm of immigration law, things are 
quite exciting almost every day. Things are changing. Things drastically change depending on uh, the administration that's in power. So what really gets me excited about coming into the office is first and foremost, the team that you know I've assembled. I'm nothing without my team, even up until now, even if we take the trials that I attend as an example. Yes, I'm the one conducting trial for the most part, as well as now I have some other attorneys who also do trial work and are employed with us. But you know, the majority of that work, over 90%, is done by the paralegals and legal assistants mm-hmm. uh, and, and associate attorneys. And so the team is what drives me to come in and, again, bringing that back to a soccer context, like if you love your team and you're willing to kind of do anything for them, that's, uh, you know, a successful team or a great team with that culture is what actually builds championships, right? And so for me, it's my team. Besides the team, it it is knowing and understanding the concept that I've never seen it all within the practice of immigration law, which is why for so many years, that's all we did. And even actually more specifically, when I started out my practice, I had devoted it actually just to asylum. I I even went even more specialized because I thought that was one of the things I needed to do to separate from the rest. If I got really good at like a subspecialty within this area, people would start coming to me and that paid off because that's all I did for the first three, four years. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so just knowing that there's a range of complex issues and we get to deal with clients from all over the world. And so I, I think that is part of the excitement that drives me where no two cases are, you know, alike for the most part, depending on what type of clients you're dealing with. Yeah. It must be special to meet so many different people and help them through a very difficult situation, depending on their immigration status. I'm yeah, sure. we are blessed. Yeah, we are we are blessed to be um, here in the United States, irrespective of a lot of things that are going on around us. Uh, we we still are, or most of us are at least fully aware that a uh, majority of the world wants to come here, right? right. And there's a reason they want to come here. There's a reason uh, people are taking risks to their lives to even come here. And so we are grateful for that. And I am blessed to be in a position where I get to do, um, I get to practice an area of law that is not only very special to me, but that continues to drive and feed my soul. Um, Mm -hmm. And we are, we've become successful at it. So that translates into a very, um, a very successful or financial, financially strong law firm. Yeah, that's a win-win for sure. And clients are looking for people who not only are very good at what they do, but also enjoy what they do. Cause it comes across, it comes across in communications with them, but also in court. And that's kind of some of the most important times for a client is how your counsel comes across to a jury, to a judge, to opposing counsel. So going off of this a bit, cause I know immigration law can have its limitations in regards to the access you can get for your clients or the outcome? What are some things that keep you up at night? You know, up until uh, prior to the pandemic, I would say I slept like a baby. I slept like a baby. (laughs) I had no issues. I think lately with a lot of procedures changing within immigration courts and in terms of like filing, they're catching up to the 21st century and all of that. Some of the things that I lose sleep over perhaps would be, you know, did we miss a deadline? Did my team miss did we file correctly I think other than that a question I often get asked is how do you how do you sleep well at night knowing that you know you have trial tomorrow and you're representing a family with young children that if you lose this case they'll be sent back the country and it's a very fair question and not that I'm fully desensitized to it I think the approach I've always had 
again, reflecting back on my own struggles, which, you know, I'm no one to compare my struggles to anyone else's, but I feel like when you have faced certain um, struggles in life, you kind of relate a little bit more and and, and you can perhaps approach delicate situations like this a lot better Mm -hmm. and so my approach has always actually been that whenever I show up for any of these cases whether I'm representing an individual or a family is I come into court with everything I've got I lay it out on the table I give my 100% if that case for whatever reason does not go my way as long as I know deep down inside that it was not due to something that I lacked on something I could have better on I will sleep better at night and mm-hmm. I will sleep well at night. And I, and I think that's what I continue to tell my team and any new attorneys that join us is that you have to have your moral compass guide you and know that there are things that are out of your control. That's and, so true. Yeah. And, and so if you can really unlock that in your mindset, that there are things that are beyond your control and you just need to focus on what is in your control, then I feel like you will approach not only litigation better, but you will approach all aspects of just being a good lawyer. Yeah. And I know you talk a lot about your work culture and your team, and they seem to be a big part of your success as they should be. Do you feel like a certain personality or it takes a certain personality to run a successful law firm? I think um, I have a lot of mentors and friends that run their own practices and we couldn't be different, more different (laughs) personalities. Yeah, I will say that if there is one common trait that probably unites us all from what I've seen is the emphasis on teamwork and building that team culture. It's not about individual superstars. Um, it's not about taking the credit for, you know, the win in trial. It's it's sending it right back and saying and making sure the team is appreciated and they understand that I am at their service and that they are the reason we are here. And, and so I think it's gratification. I think it's acknowledgement. It's also being a friend. I think there's a lot of bosses and I've obviously had those bosses in the past that there was a clear separation between work and just personal life. I like to check in with my staff and just make sure that they're doing great because everyone has their own struggles and and maybe I can help in somehow or some way. But I feel like, you know, for individuals that I see Monday through Fridays and sometimes Saturdays, it would, um, I don't think it would be, it would be, I don't think it would be very kind or respectful of me of not to actually ask what else is going on in their life, you know, how, how their work um, is is being impacted by it. Maybe I'm giving too much work. Maybe the work is wearing down on them. Maybe they need another role. I continue to ask my staff when we do these ch- weekly check-ins, whether or not there's something that I could do differently. I always ask that question to my team. For you, that's very good, especially in your position. Thank you. Yeah, I think it it says a lot about you and the work you try to put forward for your employees and your clients. I know in the industry, a lot of places don't have that. And a lot of times that's what staff and lower level attorneys are looking for, kind of just to feel like they're a part of something where this work sometimes doesn't always give you that, especially if you're doing more transactional things, it's less interpersonal connections, but to have a place that you feel like a team and connecting. I mean, I will say some people don't love to share their personal life. And I have seen that I'm a very open person. And as you were saying, you never know what's happening at home that could be impacting their work or how their work impacts their life at home. So for you to be at such a high role and to appreciate that, I think that says a lot about you. Have you had any limitations in your growth due to your age or your years of experience, either now or more so when you're starting on? 
Yeah, that's actually a very great question, Shaila. Um, I wouldn't say my age or experience had any limitations, um, specifically because in terms of the experience, one of the things I did when I uh, went solo was I sought out worship from a much more experienced attorney than I was. And it almost like the stars aligned where when I had just got uh, gone solo, um, I was I was blessed to meet an immigration attorney who now has been doing it for over 40 years. All he's ever done was immigration law. And so we hit it off really well. We actually met at a detention facility, the border. Oh, wow. And, and yeah, when we hit it off, we start talking. Um, I co-counseled I co on some of his cases. And he actually came to me with an opportunity and said, look, like, why don't we just be of counsel to each other's firms? No money involved. It was literally just the relationship he liked. And, and he was very candid. And that's what I've always loved about John. Uh, John Lowett is his name and his office is um, out in Dallas. And one of the things I loved about him from the very beginning was I was a newbie attorney. He could have taken me for a ride. Right. This is, <laughs> right yeah. This is a guy 40 years in. A lot yeah. of people talk about him. The judges all highly respected him, still respect him. And um, I'll never forget that when we started this um, relationship, he said to me, look, you know, Deepak, I can offer you mentorship. And yes, you can take on cases where you don't have to worry about the experience because I'll guide you through that. And, and that's all fine. But I'm going to tell you that I need something from you and what I need from you, I'll never be able to actually make up for, which is the fact that you speak Punjabi, you understand Hindi, and you can you can explain and understand my clientele a lot better than I can, which is what right. he said to me, right? Yeah. And he said, the experience that I'm going to give you, you're going to get that in a couple of years and you're going to surpass me. And so he was very like, you know, yeah. very open about that. And and that's very rare in our industry. I have to be honest, very rare in our industry. There are, there are other motives. Another great mentor that I had at that time when I was starting out was um, an attorney, very successful attorney uh, by the name of Rahul Patel, who is in San Antonio, also has his own firm, Patel Gaines, and they uh, heavily focus on commercial litigation and real estate law. Even then with his guidance, you know, he told me, look, like you just got to kill it all right he's he's very passionate right so he's like yeah, yeah. kill it whatever it is that you do you just gotta be <laughs> yeah right you gotta be the best you gotta beat everyone and so i use that again as my guiding principle of like okay well like how can i make an impact if i do immigration law and just say i do immigration law i might make less of an impact and it might take me longer but if i say look asylum i've done this i even did this during law school at the immigration clinic i'm really good at this and maybe i'll be known as the litigator well, that I think is what kind of allowed me to go faster. Now, I would I would say one thing that I feel like stunted my growth, which I don't see as a positive way because it was intentional for me, is that I shied away from social media. I did not do any advertising. A um, very interesting fact about our firm is even though we are uh, over seven-figure law firm, I never spent a dollar on marketing. Wow. And a dollar marketing. And it amazes a lot of people when I say that, but yeah, no, it does for sure. Yeah. And and so I'm starting to um, advertise just now, like literally as we speak, I'm going to be uh, signing an agreement with a marketing team to actually now go all out. And shout out to your Instagram at attorney Deepak. Thank you. Uh, well, I'll have to check it out. Thank you. Yeah. And so I just start posting videos literally like maybe a month or two ago and it was very hard for me. Right. Um, I am personally, in my personal life, I am very much an introvert. I just, you know, um, I like to spend time with my family. I do boxing, I play soccer. That's, I, I live a very boring life maybe for most people. Uh, but, you know, besides that, I, I think my 
again, my core principles, the first five, six years was exactly that, that I'm not doing it just for the money. Mm -hmm. I, I want to be really well known for what I do. And I really want this firm to kind of pick itself up. And so looking back, yes, I know that if I had started advertising four or five years ago, uh, this firm easily would have been tripled yeah. in size and revenue. Mm -hmm. But again, that was fine because the trade-off was I got without trying or without paying for advertising, I got into all these major publications last year because of my asylum work for a lot of sick asylum seekers that Harvard and Stanford, their religious legal clinics were part of the law school. They both did a report where they sought my input and they released a report based on how, to, how for other attorneys to fight um, asylum uh, cases for specifically for people who are from Punjab or sick asylum seekers or people mm -hmm. from India. So these are things that I feel like if I was just, if I really went into just being like commercialized, so to speak, maybe I perhaps wouldn't have gotten these opportunities. Right. Now I feel like I have great footing that I'm now going in and coming into social media and saying, okay, now my work speaks for me. Yes. Here's yes. I'm not just, I'm not the new kid on the block. I'm actually the old dog. The old <laughs> exactly. dog. And, and, and so that brings me to like a present mentor, um, Ali Awad, who um, runs an extremely successful um, a personal injury law firm out in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of the things he said to me earlier this year when we, when we connected was, look, like, you know, if you're great and nobody knows you're great, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and, uh, and when he said that to me, I was like, dang, that's so true. Like, yes, true, yeah. I'm good. We won all these really good cases. And, you know, we've, we've been in all these publications and blah, blah, blah. But do people actually know me throughout the United States? So, and then I was like, okay, well, you know, I built a system. Let's now scale the system. Now let's do it the right way. Because, you know, going back to the previous two jobs, I was really concerned about quality, right? Mm -hmm. And which is yeah. why I actually always shied away from social media because we never had a problem getting cases, but I was always afraid of getting too much. But I really feel like this year has been hours for the taking where I've built a framework and I have... I have the right team around me that I've built where mm -hmm. I know that now when we scale the firm, there is no end and that I, I know that we will be able to still focus on that quality part. Yeah, it's limitless. And I think you did it the right way. You know, you really emphasize the foundation and you're just like, how do I get as good as I can for this type of law? And then everything else will come. I think that's the right way to do it. Because a lot of times you'll see places they are heavy on the marketing, but then at the end of the day, that's not even the attorney you're speaking with. They aren't taking the time to actually know your case. So I definitely support your side where you built it from the bottom. And it is interesting to hear one of your mentors from Atlanta say, you know, yes, you might be great, but does everyone know you're great? I mean, although I know some people might think that makes us not selfish, but almost like increases our ego or whatever. But in this industry, I think it's important to share your recognitions because it speaks volumes for your reputation, as well as what other people think of you. It just shows you're passionate and it's free marketing. That's what I always think, you know, just sharing on LinkedIn, something you did. It's not bragging. It's just showing how you love your work and you just want to share that with everyone else. Absolutely. And, and it triggers, um, you know, the most remote um, interactions sometimes, like I went to the bank here in Fresno, like just a couple of weeks back and the teller asked me what I do for a living. I told her, and then she started telling me a story about her dad being uh, deported, you know, back to his native country about 10 years ago. And that she's now figuring out how to bring him back. Wow. Because she's turned 21. And so it's like, 
I think those are the things that drive me and made me understand that, look, like, yeah, I should be on social media because I offer good advice. Mm -hmm. We offer good advice. It's not about just dancing on TikTok or doing whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I no disrespect to anyone that no, does no, it. No, no, I know. It's not my personality. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of good that we can offer. So you never know who will be watching that video or who might hear your name, who might think, you know what, let me talk to this. Let me talk to Deepak's team and see how I may be able to get assistance. And it's reaching people where they need to be reached. You know, your clients might be there. Your clients might be on TikTok. They might, they're not going to be at these events that you're going to looking for, like uh, the next bar association president, you know, they're going to be boots on the ground, looking on TikTok, looking on Instagrams, just kind of day to day. So that's a great avenue to definitely explore now and keep me posted on that. I appreciate you building up your marketing with Wicked Good Lawyers here today. So hopefully we can reach some people because we're all the way in Massachusetts based in Boston. So for our listeners, do you have any pros and cons of running your own firm? Yeah, I mean, the, the list is long on both sides. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I were to uh, summarize it, I think for, for pros, I, I think it's finally getting to work on my own terms. Um, getting to choose my own team. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I also did in Toronto between working all those jobs and going to college was I also uh, played for, well, I started a local soccer club there and oh, I managed, cool. yeah, I, I managed it from uh, 20, sorry, 2006 to 2011. Um, and so again, using that same old soccer reference, getting to choose my own team, uh, dictating my own hours, even though, you know, that's kind of a, you know, everyone will say, well, yeah, you know, I'm my own boss, but I'm also, you know, married to this job in terms yeah. of I'm putting in way more hours than I need to. So right. that's, again, a different conversation in terms of balance. But in terms of cons, I, I think one of the things I can think of off the top of my head is also understanding or knowing when it's time to let people go and having to actually go through that motion of firing mm -hmm. people. I, one of my weaknesses, I would definitely and can openly say is that concept of hire slow and fire fast, I still think is not something that I've perfected or that I actually um, um, claim. Um, I've never even heard that. So oh, that's really? Oh, yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's thrown around by my mentors a lot. Yeah, and they give me grief for it. But I, I definitely don't hire slow. I mean, I, I should say I hire slow. I don't fire fast. Fire fast yeah. <laughs> um, but my thing is, again, you know, I just, I really want to give everyone every opportunity to succeed. Hey, that's too. Give them the chance. That's what I yeah. think. It's like, they'll be better. They'll figure it out. Exactly. But then sometimes, you know, as, as someone who operates and runs a law firm, it's also then understanding and coming to that conclusion a lot faster yeah. that this person is dragging down everybody else. Yes, um, yeah. And so it's just knowing when to kind of make that decision. And I think time commitment, right? That kind of I, I alluded to that in terms of discussing my pros, but I think understanding and being better at that work-life balance, which is why I got into this, which is why I went solo, is a daily reminder of why I need to continue to also give some time for myself and for my family and not putting all these hours. And, right. and so it, it's almost a catch-22, right? Yes, you're setting your own hours, but are you really doing a nine-to-five? Yes. Yeah. And that does segue into my question of how you successfully delegate tasks. I mean, that can help with the work-life balance, especially when you own your own firm. But have you had difficulty in doing that? I know personally, I am <laughs> not always the best in delegating because, you know, sometimes you think you can do it better and quicker. But at the end of the day, that might not be true. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like we've really elevated the art of delegating tasks this year uh, in, in terms of uh, through great mentorship that I've received from a lot of colleagues and mentors, 
one of the first things that I did this year was uh, build out a team of assistants where low-level tasks were assigned to them. I found I was spending way too much time doing things that actually did not require my time or attention. And I built a team around that, gave them the adequate training, which is very important in delegating anything. Um, mm -hmm. It's very easy to give someone a list and say, I want A, B, C, and D done. But if you haven't given them a practice manual, you haven't gone through it with them time and time again until they're comfortable, then you're almost setting themselves, you're setting yourself and them up for failure. Also letting them ask questions and um, doing weekly check-ins with them, I think is very important with that. Now, going back to delegating uh, perhaps the big ticket items, which for me and our firm was always having someone else show up for trial on my behalf. Yeah, And that is something I definitely love to sleep out. Um, took me, um, so 2016 up until now, about a month or two ago, was the first time we just hired two lawyers, two all-star lawyers, trial lawyers who um, have special em emphasis on removal defense litigation, including asylum, uh, who now do some of my trials for me because we're at a point where I'm appearing in court over 150 times a year. Wow. And so obviously this, this was getting very taxing um, mm -hmm. on me and both, you know, uh, mentally and physically and emotionally. And so um, I just really try to avoid that for the longest time. But again, um, you know, going back to one of my mentors in Texas, uh, one of the things Rahul told me, um, you know, early on was, look, like, you also need to get out of your mindset that you, you only you're the best. Like that no one else can do what yes, you do. Right, and yeah. We're all victim of this, right? We're all victim of, well, you know, I go to trial and I win 98% of my cases. I don't think this guy will be as hungry. I don't think yeah, this yeah. person will be hungry, right? Give him um, a chance. Yes, yeah. So give them a chance. Exactly. Give them the tools. Make sure that they're vetted. Make sure you've done everything you need to do and you've offered everything to them. And you know what? It was a gamble that paid off because I actually, you know, I used to say this to my clients about two, three years ago when I used to go over the retainer with them. Yeah. One of their main questions was, Deepak, will you show up in court? Yes, yes. Always their, their question, right? Especially yeah. in the immigration context where, mm -hmm. unfortunately, there's a lot of immigration practitioners that have never even seen a courtroom. My old boss was one of them, right? And, <laughs> uh, and so what I used to start telling two years ago was, my promise to you guys is this, that, you know, I've been doing this myself for these many years. I can't promise I'll be doing it for the next five years myself. But the day I hire someone else, those individuals or that individual will be better than me. And I truly believe that. I believe that the two individuals I've brought on staff now, um, and there's no shame in saying it, they're better than me. I consider them better than me. And, yeah, and that speaks volumes and, for our firm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. And it speaks volumes for you as a leader. You know, I think everyone can be that good and putting the time and effort to make them even better is amazing, especially in the context of the legal industry where people don't always get that opportunity. And I have recently read a book and now I've been saying it a lot to my fiance at home where I'm trying to delegate tasks better. And the book says, is it something only you can do? If yes, say yes to it. If no, see if somebody else can help you out if you don't have the bandwidth. And I think that's very true. You can Love use it. that at home or at work. So now I try to tell myself, am I the only person that can do this? Which usually not, unless it's a legal issue, which at home, that's never the case. So um, yeah, that's definitely things to think about because delegation helps you be a good leader, be a good worker, be a good partner at home and at work. So thanks for your great tips. And I love hearing your story from first year to owning your own firm.
Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, they soundly collect and process this information efficiently to a host review platform at an affordable rate. Every litigator deserves to have eDiscovery review software that is efficient and affordable with access to customer service and project managers that make them feel supported. Hundreds of litigation attorneys from Boston and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with eDiscovery. You should too. Looking for a court reporter for a deposition, arbitration, trial, or interview? Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. They provide on-demand access to more than 12,000 offices in over 2,700 cities across the country and have working business relationships with 5,000 independent court reporting professionals. No matter where you are or your state's requirement, they can provide an experienced, professional court reporter for any situation. Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. Now, moving on to our next segment, I'd love for you to share your advice in building a book of business. Um, you seem to be so successful in your initial story of starting out with three clients with $4,500 and now being a, I think you said seven figure law firm, which I mean, hats off to you. That is so impressive. So what steps have you taken in your career that have been um, the most beneficial in finding clients? Yeah, I think Shaila, um, one of the one of the things that I've focused on and perhaps obsessed over um, is that continuous conversation we've had uh, over previous segments in terms of focusing on quality. Yep. Really needed to bank on um, individuals knowing that our work is really good and that um, our advice to them is honest and transparent. Um, and those things were important to me because I knew I didn't have a marketing budget. I mean, back then I couldn't even afford one, but even when we could afford one, I continued to just build on that principle that, look, if if majority of our clients are all coming through word of mouth, and it's, then it's just a revolving door. We just bank on that. And the right. only way to continue that is if you focus on the quality. Now, you know, what I did in terms of building the book of business is um, I, I mentioned earlier about uh, striking that partnership with my of counsel, John. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, John was a 40-year uh, veteran of immigration law. So I was lucky to be able to have that relationship with him where I was not uncomfortable about taking on a case. Um, and if there was something that John needed to kind of jump in with in terms of a consultation for a more complex case at that time, then John did that. Um, you know, all these years later, it's, it's funny how things work out. Now John calls me for advice, uh, <laughs> asks me specific questions. So I love that, right? I love how we've grown and the relationship has, um, um, has been um, as such where uh, we've we've mutually respected each other and also more importantly I've never felt like um, that I don't need someone anymore I always in my life whether it's professional or personal setting I'm I try to be the first one to acknowledge who has gotten me to this space yes. um, I try to because it, it's not a it's not a me thing, right? I, I I can never say no one has ever helped me and I've gotten here all by myself. Right. I have done the hard work, no doubt. I've done the hard work, but I've had guiding principles, guiding friendships and mentorships that have allowed me to kind of be in this space. And I always try to be respectful of that. Um, one of the other things in terms of starting your, your book of business is um, 
just really being honest with the client. I, I had a lot of friends that, um, or, you know, uh, former law school classmates that went solo after me. And um, a lot of them would be taking cases that they shouldn't have been taken. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and so I, you know, it disappoints me to an extent because again, I, I don't know what someone's personal uh, situation is. And I understand that obviously, you know, a lot of people um, have financial commitments and are doing this purely because they need to be financially stable. I understand all of that. But the thing is that, you know, on the other end of that spectrum is uh, you're, you're, you're potentially ruining a client's life. And more importantly, if we're speaking about the immigration context, I can't even count anymore how many cases to this day come our way where I feel like the attorney or not, not, I feel, I know for a fact that the attorney has committed malpractice. Wow. And, and it's even worse to know that the attorney has taken thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from a family that had no idea of what they were doing and were never given any proper legal advice. So my guiding principle from day one has been that I'm going to take your case uh, based on the principle of, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know and what my plan is, what my strategy is. And if I feel like there are no options, I'm not going to shy away from telling you there are no options for your case. And sometimes, you know what, we've had clients who've come back to us and say, well, we spoke to this attorney and this attorney said this is possible. And my, my, my response is purely simple. I tell them, ask the attorney to put that in writing. <laughs> Honestly, it, it works yeah. almost every single time, right? Yeah. And especially because of the community we're dealing with, it is very easy to um, put them on the wrong path. It is yeah. very easy for me to say, sign a 10, 20, $30,000 retainer and um, I'll do something for you. I'll fix your papers. Um, and that happens. That happens in this area. Yeah, they can get lot. taken advantage of. Absolutely. And so, you know, my response to that always is, well, tell them to give you that in writing uh, because I do that to this day. That's great if, advice. Uh, yeah. If, if a complex case comes our way, um, I post consult, whether it's me or my other attorneys, we'll send a follow-up email and we'll explain to them what our strategy for this case is, what we believe, what we will charge, and what we think the next steps are. I think that speaks volumes, right? This is These are individuals who have been taken for a ride sometimes, who literally after two decades sometimes actually don't have a clue of what happened in their case or what actually right. what petitions were filed. And for now, for them to consult with a team that is putting everything in writing and is willing to tell them upfront what their chances are and what is, you know, what their likely options are, if any, I think is what builds that trust. Mm -hmm, yeah. For sure. Especially with that line of work and the practice you're in. Um, I've been recently having some thoughts on how to properly vet cases before you accept them. Do you have any advice on that? <laughs> and uh, sometimes I find myself a little too deep in something that I may regret, but I'm always excited to keep going on. Yeah, you know, that's that's part of growing pains. And that's definitely something we, um, I wouldn't say struggle with, but it's something we deal with as well from time to time. Um, the best I've done is in terms of the intake process, I've been very specific and intentional mm -hmm. in making sure that we don't get cases that I after that I have to feel that afterwards I have to call a client and say, we actually can't take your case and here's your retainer. Um, and we've actually very rarely ever had to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. I could probably count maybe like two or three clients I can think of in the last seven to eight years, which again is part of the, we don't, we weren't really the marketing type. So maybe that's why our numbers are very low. And I had that ultimate control of who we accepted as a client right. and those numbers will change. Yeah, but, change now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, that, that being said, I think it just starts from that intake process and just making sure that 
um, you are properly screening um, that client before you know he or she uh, signs that contract and um, you're going forth. Of course, there are some things that come up afterwards. Uh, oops, you know, I forgot to tell you I have a criminal record or I forgot to tell you, you know, you know, so these things happen yes. from time, uh, which, you know, I still don't mind because that's really on the client. Right. Um, but I think one of the things that we that I, you know, I'm really confident about and which is why I attribute a lot of our success to one of the things that we continuously do is I do obsess over um, certain processes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's always better ways of doing things. I feel like even right now, our firm could do a much better job onboarding clients. So, um, you know, what I did was I try to find out what are other platforms I can use in conjunction with our practice management software, which we use Clio, um, what can I use that will simplify, uh, simplify and automate the process? And we found a program that does that. So now I'm working on that. So it's, oh. it, I think it's in terms of growing your book of business, just much like what we're doing now in terms of expanding to social media is you can't remain stale. You have to have a plan of action of, you know, this is what my end of year goal is. And this is what I hope to do next year. But what am I going to change in order to establish that? Yeah, no, that's definitely great advice, um, especially for new people in the industry trying to navigate um, how to build their book of business. And I, being somewhat newer, love to hear what people's tactics are on intakes. And there's always something to learn and trying to stay up on um, information is helpful. Have you found certain groups or events to be the most beneficial in building your reputation or building parts of your book of business? Um, you know, we didn't really do too many events, to be honest. Um, but quite recently, I think just um, showing face in the community, whether it's like a soccer tournament or uh, humanitarian causes that happen, um, or just offering some, one of the things I used to do from time to time was uh, offer, uh, or not offer, uh, attend free legal clinics where I would answer some immigration questions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just being in a space um, almost much like to what you said earlier is that there's only so much, there's only so many referrals that you can get from attending local bar events and being with other attorneys, right? Sure. An attorney will send you cases from time to time, but that attorney in the city also knows 30 other immigration lawyers. Right. right? And, and so I think one of the gifts that we've had that I feel like I've personally always had from the beginning was I connect with my clients really well. Um, and I can close clients. I can close clients, not because I feel like I can. It's just your ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not it's not duping them into signing a contract. It's just sitting down with them and answering all their questions and letting them know that look, these are this is my honest opinion. And I feel like once they talk to me and they they get an understanding of oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, I feel like that is what always wins them over, mm -hmm. almost always. And so I feel like for me, it's really about showing up to these local events even more so now going forth and making sure that I have this uh, presence, so to speak, um, and and to know that I'm approachable. I'm not just this, yeah. you know, standoffish attorney that, you know, you're never going to speak to after that one paid consult. And behind the curtain, yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, th that's definitely nice to hear. Um, I find it interesting sometimes to keep up to date with um, everything people are doing on LinkedIn events, you know, it's hard to show face to all these things, but at the end of the day, it's what your reputation is with these clients and the face you put forward with other 
co-counsel, whether we were saying you are a frenemy, building that reputation and just being a good person, making sure uh, you're approachable. Would you say some of the best um, tips with um, clients is one that they have trust with you during the initial communications and to them feeling heard. Feeling heard is extremely important. Um, I'm, I'm sure a constant complaint for many clients, no matter what area of practice we're, we're speaking of is I have, uh, no communication, right? Uh, I'm not being updated on my case. I'm not hearing back from anyone. We deal with that time and time again. Uh, and seeing that with other clients that come to us. Now, obviously, uh, our business is not a perfect, you don't run a perfect ship. There's always things that we can do better, uh, but it just goes back to that training uh, and making sure the team is aware of that. What is important to me in terms of our core firm values? And one of the things are that the client needs to be updated. The client needs to understand the process. And, you know, you obviously have some clients that they don't want to speak to anyone but me. Um, and, and, you know, we deal with that from time to time, but it's also, again, that trust factor. If you, if you can give them all the tools that they need and you're giving all the right answers and you update them as you speak, um, then that need is really never there for them to only want to speak to me and no one else. So, so I think um, that client communication factor is big because, you know, more than half of our clients actually um, easily more than half come from other attorneys. They're not just you know, uh, individuals or families who've never had an attorney before, more than half of them uh, come from other attorneys and their complaint is almost always exactly that, that either they feel like they've been misled or after they sign the contract, um, basically they have no idea what's going on in their Radio case. silence, yeah. And I hear that a lot. We see some seminars here in Massachusetts by the BBO, the Board of Bar Overseers, and they give advice that some of the biggest complaints to them against an attorney is the communication. There's no follow-up. There's no updates. The client's kind of just in limbo, and then they come back with an outcome that they didn't even know what was happening. So I definitely echo your advice and staying up on the communication, however it can be. I mean, if you're solo, reach out to um, other mentors, like you were saying, to get advice on that and then building a good team. So they don't want just you because, you know, at the end of the day, when you have hundreds of cases, they might not be able to reach you right away. But following through, because, you know, in any situation, not even just in the legal industry, people just want to be updated. People want to just understand what's happening, especially when you're giving them a lot of money. And in these situations with immigration, a lot of times it's their livelihood at stake. They might be getting deported. You know, you have to keep updated with them and their families. So that's helpful um, for people to understand and to keep up to date on. Um and then just lastly, talking about building a book of business, how would you recommend attorneys um, helping themselves stand out from the rest? You know, we kind of all do the same stuff, um, but how can you make yourself stand out? Um, I think uh, there's a few things that can be done. One of my recommendations would definitely be that uh, almost similar to what I did starting out is focusing perhaps on a more specialized area within uh, practice. So for example, you know, I focus on asylum in term, uh, instead of just focusing broadly on immigration law. I feel like that allowed me to leapfrog a lot faster because asylum itself is already too complicated. Um, second is, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not, I don't want to sound cheesy, but 
it's your energy, right? It's your energy when you're dealing with these clients and, and you alluded to that or you pointed that out earlier where um, if you're not confident, I always remember one of the clients uh, we retained about a couple of years back when he came to me, I usually always ask, so, you know, why, why do you want to leave your current lawyer? Yeah. And, and this, this client told me back then that, you know, he, he hired this lawyer. Uh, he's all over social media. He's all on the radio, you know, doing whatever he's doing. And uh, he finally hired him, took him to LA immigration court. And before the hearing, uh, the lawyer started trembling and shaking. Oh gosh! And, and I'm not again, you know, like everyone's been scared. I I don't want yeah. to, you know. But this is someone who like said I'm the best, and I'm and we've done this. We have all this experience, and blah blah blah. blah. And he's like, when I saw that, and I just want to add again, it, you know, I want to add to this. It wasn't even trial; it was like an initial appearance. Mm. So it was like it was a very I basic see. appearance, yeah. yeah. Right. And and so he was like, right there in that moment, I realized this guy cannot be my lawyer. Yeah. Um, and when he said that to me, I was almost just laughing because it was like, yeah, well, that's the truth, right? It's it's that energy you feed. When he was talking to me and I was telling him about the case, I already knew the judge. Even though I'm in LA Immigration Court, you know, uh, not very often, I already knew the judge. I had experience with that judge. Um, and so I, I know how she can be and how she can maybe sometimes even um, intimidate uh, counsel. Um, and so we're just having a laugh about that. But I think he very quickly saw that okay, Deepak knows what he's doing and, and he's not just fluff on social media, but he can actually back it up. And I think that was very important for him to see. So I, I, I do believe it's that energy and it's that conversation where um, I'm quite confident in the work that I do, right? I, I don't need to um, um, you know hide, hide behind a certain script. I'm not saying I'm an immigration encyclopedia. I'm learning new stuff every day, but right. I, I know enough to know that if you stop me and had a conversation with me, um, I can probably give you some really good advice that would be useful to you. Awesome. Well, Deepak, this has been so helpful. Um, just some last piece of advice we're looking for. Uh, what would you tell a first year starting off on this crazy journey of being an attorney? Uh, there's a few things I would tell them, Shiloh. Um, one thing is that as a first year, um, they need to continue to chase their individual dream in terms of um, what feeds their soul. We've had this conversation, but it is very important to actually understand the concept of what it is that we're saying. Feeding your soul means that you, you want to come into work and you want to be happy. Yep. And you have you have gone far enough to make it as a first year lawyer. Uh, to understand that uh, you didn't come this far to just accept whichever job was thrown at you. And even if it was, and that's all that was offered to you, that is okay. Mm -hmm. You will continue to build and be better, but it's just very easy for all of us, especially in the current world that you know we're living in, to almost get sucked into a cycle of the high paying, but low satisfaction job, career job, and you know it pays the bills, it, it feeds my lifestyle, all those things. But if you're honest and true with yourself and you understand that your passion lies somewhere else, don't equate money to that equation in terms of, well, yeah, I can do this because again, I've been down that road, right? I, I've, I, I had my own friends ask me, I don't understand why you chose immigration. Like <laughs> you have energy, you should have done A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. But I was just very confident in what I did. And I, again, you know, back to the, the law professor who gave me that advice is just do really, whatever you do, do it really well, the money will come. The money yeah. will come. It doesn't come the first year, it'll come five years, it'll come three years, whatever it is. So I think that advice, 
um, is important. In addition to that, I think what's also important to understand is as a first year lawyer, um, there are things that um, there are uncomfortable situations in the workplace that you'll have to deal with. Um, you, you may make mistakes and that's okay, but own up to those mistakes and learn how to get better, uh, but never sell yourself short. Um, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm saying this as someone who also owns a law firm, but I also don't want to call them overrated, but it, it's, I feel like sometimes, and I, again, I've worked for individuals like that. I think sometimes we end up working for, um, certain individuals who have forgotten where they come from mm -hmm. and, and and that is very transparent in how they communicate with you and how they interact with you and this is more of a, a personal example but one of the guiding principles that I feel like my dad left me with uh, you know before he passed away was uh, my dad um, you know in up until when I was 16 I, I would see his interactions with many individuals one thing I always saw about my dad was that you know whether it was a janitor, whether it was someone with very deep pockets and a multimillionaire, um, he always treated the individual with the same amount of respect. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can quite honestly say that is very rare, uh, not only in uh, uh, just broadly speaking, but it's extremely rare in our profession where where your clients are maybe given significant uh, more significance because of who they represent and uh, how much money they're giving you. And of course, I understand some are big retainers. You have to take care of a client. I understand all of that. We deal with that too. We have a corporate immigration side. We're dealing with asylum seekers. But I can quite honestly say that I've built a team around us um, where we give the exact same importance uh, to someone who came to this country with nothing but the clothes on their back to multi-million dollar companies who are looking to expand in the U.S. and have hired us for uh, for that operation or for that visa. And so those are things that are important, at least to me, in terms of giving advice to these first-year law students and knowing that um, there's there's a lot still for you to cover and for you to do, but just don't don't um straight don't don't go away from those guiding principles. I hope all our listeners wrote that down because that was super great advice. Thanks, Deepak. So then just our final segment is on the infamous three under three. So Deepak, what is your favorite restaurant? Well, it's hard to narrow down a favorite restaurant, but I will say any authentic Italian restaurant will do. I'm big on Italian food yes. I could eat pasta and pizza literally every other day. Um, and so uh, for me, it's just any authentic Italian restaurant. I love that. Good choice. What's your favorite dish? Um, I'm kind of boring, but I just go to just having spaghetti. Uh, okay. different types of spaghetti, but, uh, but that, that does it for me. <laughs> Can't go wrong. And yeah. what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? My spare time, I still try to play a little bit of soccer. Um, and, uh, I do a lot of boxing. I, uh, I have weekly kickboxing sessions. I started about a year and a half, two years ago, which I have a great time doing. And then aside from that is just spending time with my family. Um, and, uh, um, obviously also my, my work staff, because, um, we're, we're beyond just coworkers and employees. And so I, I've been blessed of having great circle both in and outside of the work. And finally, number three, what's your best memory of being a lawyer? So, um, so this question is tough because, <laughs> um, you know, I'm blessed to be doing what I do for a living in terms of practicing immigration law and, um, how many families this specific area continues to help. So if I were to really um, feed off any memory, I, I would say uh, I'm, I'm lucky to get monthly reminders and great memories of uh, 
like every month, actually, like I said, uh, in terms of winning a case for a family that now is allowed to stay here and the smile and look on those kids' faces or like the mom or the father. Um, For me, I have great memories every month if I'm able to do those things. And I hope I get to continue doing those things for a long time. That's awesome. I really enjoyed speaking with you, Deepak. And I know I might be uh, biased, but I will say I think you're the epitome of a wicked good lawyer. And I hope all our listeners gained so much from your story. It was very motivational and your advice. Not only does it come across as you being a great attorney, but also a great person. And that's what I always look for in the legal industry. So thanks for being our guest. Thank you. And I really appreciate the invitation. All the best to you. If people want to connect with Deepak, you can connect with him at Deepak at singalawalia.com. That's D-E-E-P-A-K at S-I-N-G-H-A-H-L-U-W-A-L-I-A.com. Also, as we said, big shout out to his Instagram. Follow him at Attorney Deepak and then also on LinkedIn. This show allows us to meet awesome lawyers just like Deepak so we can learn to become Wicked Good Lawyers. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show. Check out our website, wickedgoodlawyers.com for more on Deepak Aluwalia, the podcast and to purchase show merch. A big thank you to our show sponsors, Datamine and US Legal Support. I always love to hear from our listeners. So please subscribe to the show, add me on LinkedIn and email me at wickedgoodlawyers at gmail.com. 